if we sit down and listen to another human being or give somebody a hug, mm -hmm. that one gesture of giving your ears to another human being and establishing that connection is sometimes all it takes to prevent a suicide. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time. In a world of mental health, together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me here. I hope the last three episodes on suicide awareness, the topic that is so needed to be discussed, the topic that is still taboo, the topic that still has its stigma. If you didn't listen to the last three episodes, they are really good episodes. Please go and listen before you go and listen to this next one, because I think the first episode with Marnie was, wow, there were so many tips there that I wasn't aware of and that I was shocked and that I was so grateful to hear from Marnie. So go listen. If you didn't have a chance to rate our podcast and you have iTunes, please do us the favor of going and take 30 seconds out of your day to say thank you to us. We put a lot of effort into this. There's a whole team of people helping us produce this. There's a lot of work that goes into this podcast. Give us your part and please rate us on iTunes. 30 seconds of your time can be a tremendous help to us and others. Help others find us easier by your ratings and reviews. Thank you for all of you that left the rating and review. We so appreciate it. Each and every one of you. We read them. We enjoy them. It gives us courage to continue. This episode is an old episode. And I said, you know what? I cannot go through Suicide Awareness Month without bringing this old episode from a year ago with Anne Moss Rogers. She's been on our podcast twice. And she taught me so much about suicide awareness, how to support a loved one or a friend or a client that's going through suicide thoughts, suicide attempts, what to say. She was very helpful to me. She was really helpful to me. How to support a family that lost a loved one to suicide. All this. So I'm going to bring back an old episode. This is going to be a replay. And that's okay because good ones have to come back again. So enjoy this episode because Anne Moss will teach us so much about what the world needs to hear in order to prevent more deaths, in order to support loved ones. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Enjoy the listen. Welcome, Anne Moss. Thank you so much for being here with us today, for, sh for being willing to share the story and breaking the stigma and encouraging others to prevent deaths in their family with loved ones. Welcome. Thank you so much for, number one, having the guts to tackle the topic, which is pretty taboo. But I believe that by talking about it, 
in a respectful and thoughtful and responsible way. We prevent suicide. It has been shown that uh, talking about suicide doesn't give somebody the idea, but instead encourages them to seek help. And of course, I'm not going to go into any kind of detail about method that uh, would certainly could certainly trigger somebody specific step by step or anything like that. So thank you for joining us. And um, I just want to give the background to what I introduced you. I said that your son had death by suicide. Anne Moss had a TED talk that she gave a very enlightening TED Talk. And one of the things that she mentioned was that she doesn't like the name committed suicide. Can you give us a little bit of a background why? So we that phrase actually is rooted in the 1600s. And that's back when it was a crime, which is kind of funny to think about that you would charge somebody with crime when they died, you know. So that's where committed suicide comes from. So who did they charge in that crime? Well, they charged the family mm-hmm. and they would not allow the family to bury that loved one in a cemetery. Mm-hmm. They would shun the family and wow. shame them. <gasps> and sometimes they were fined, you know, because their loved one died by suicide. Wow. And so this is centuries of using this phrase committed. Mm-hmm. We've, we're now at 2019. And my goal in 2020 is to at least get every reporter out there saying died by suicide because it's a public health issue. It is not a crime. That is so insightful. Did you find this out only after your son passed away? No, actually, I already knew that. And I had stopped using the phrase when I became, when I was on the board of a youth mental health organization. Mm-hmm. So I probably said it maybe when I was a teenager, not since 2010. I haven't used that phrase. Thank you for that teaching, because I, th- I think it's very important. And if not only, if even if you only got every reporter in the world to say the phrase properly, you've, you've changed the world already. So it's <laughs> for you on that. It's such an education. Some things that we're so used to saying that are so wrong. Was that in in America? Yes, it was. And the thing is that I'm not word shaming anybody. That's been an accepted phrase for a very long time. As you try to change it, you will slip up. And that's okay. And if you slip up and you self-correct yourself in public, it gives you an opportunity to educate another human being. I like that. I like that a lot. The perspective on on trying when we don't succeed at first, you try, but when you retry, you're basically um, gaining because you're educating. I like that a lot. And Moss, can you give me a little bit of a background where where you raised your family? When did you get married? How many children do you have? A little bit of a background before we deep dive into your son. I raised two boys. Uh, Richard is my oldest, and he is living his dream as a filmmaker out in California. He's film editor. Mm -hmm. And Charles was my youngest son. He's the one who died by suicide, and he was he was the icebreaker. Mm. You know, the funniest, most popular kid in school. Mm. And then I've been married to my husband thirty two years, and we acquired an animal. Mm-hmm. And about 10 years ago, his name is Andy. And that we bought that animal for my youngest son, Charles. 
And Andy is still with us, um, probably not for that much longer since he's 13. But he, it's been really nice to have Charles's dog with us after his death. Did you get the dog as a therapy dog? Yes, it is. he's not an official therapy dog, but yeah, and I should have gotten him a dog five years prior. We have all the we should have 2020 hindsight, which are so unhelpful, really, because it just keeps us in the past versus in the present accepting. But I think we all do it because it's just hard to disconnect from the facts. Right. And at this point, I'm not beating myself up about it. It's just like, I have that regret. And I acknowledge that I have that regret. And I've let that go. Mm. I've let a lot of those coulda, woulda, shouldas go. Mm -hmm. Um, it took practice, it took effort, and it took me promising that I was going to forgive myself. Mm. I got up one day and that's what I did. And do I relapse? Sure. Mm -hmm. But it short lived. I get back on the horse and I continue, but I know now not to drag myself in that rabbit hole. How old was your son when he, He Charles, you said his name was Charles? His name was Charles Aubrey Rogers. He was 20 years old when he took his life and he started to struggle with, I think he was struggling with mental health issues as early as elementary school, but it was kind of anxiety at first. And then he always got sick. So we, you know, every stomach virus, every flu, every cold, every earache that was out there, he would catch it. Um, he knew the first name of every nurse of every school he ever attended. Wow. And I didn't realize that that was a sign of potential depression later. And then... It, is it a clinical sign? Like, is this something that's a known thing in the mental health field? I that believe mothers, it is. That parents should know? Yes. So, so basically, if they get sick very often, it's con- we should check mental health and, and right. where? So it's a risk factor. So it kind of like with that, with a collection of other things. Now, if you have a child that suffers from a major illness, they're going to be susceptible to getting sick. But also children that have critical illnesses are also in a higher risk category for becoming depressed clinically. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Because they they suffer and they're isolated and they have fewer friends. Even when I was recently uh, speaking to a group at the YMCA, they have something called Leaders Club. Mm-hmm. And there was a girl who was on crutches and I said, oh, tell me what's the matter with your foot. And she had like a permanent disability that she had kept having to go back and have surgery on. I could just tell from the look on her face that she felt sad. Mm. And I had just given my presentation. So, and she was kind of hanging around and I thought I need to ask her how she's doing. So I engaged her in conversation and she told me a little bit more. Mm. I could tell she wanted to talk and she told me about her injury and she told me that she had flirted with thoughts of suicide because of the fact that she always felt so isolated from friends and, you know, she can't run out on the dance floor and (sighs) she's just more limited. Mm -hmm. And for a teenager, that's just really tough. It's a hard, it's hard enough without having this special thing that makes you even more different than everyone else. Right. 
Wow. Did he ever discuss his um, sadness with you? Never. No. And, you know, he's the funniest, most popular kid in school. So he would walk in and he was the kid that always lit up the room. So how did you know that he had depression? He was diagnosed with it. Actually, the first mention of it was we did, we were at school and his drug use had started to escalate and I I couldn't figure out why. And then I thought, well, if it's starting this early, I think it's related to something mental health. So I thought anxiety. How old was he? I'd say he was 15 at this point. He had a sleep disorder called delayed sleep phase syndrome. So that sort of figured into all of this as well. So I went to the school, I talked to special ed and they said, yeah, let's do some testing because teachers were starting to complain that he was falling asleep in class, that he wasn't getting his work done. And we just needed to go a little further into things and figure out maybe what was going going wrong. So they did some testing. And part of this testing was that they would get letters from teachers. And most of them weren't very revealing. One of them was just scathing. Obviously, the teacher couldn't stand him. Mm. And I'm like, well, you know, a parent's going to read this. I'm not sure what you thought this was going to accomplish. But anyway, I expected that from her. Mm-hmm. And the English teacher, of course, loved him because he was always so animated in that class. And then his theater teacher, Ms. Fratwell, had sent in a letter and said, I think he may be suffering from depression. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard for me to see that bubbly kid. You know, it, it just didn't fit. But I really trusted her. And I, they were, they had a good student and teacher relationship. So I thought, I trust her and I need to look into this. Wow, that's very courageous of you right there. Take a a happy, bubbly child that's just suffering a little bit from drug take to to think maybe he's really depressed and he's not that happy go lucky child that's that's huge for a parent right and it you know and there were mom- a lot of moments of self doubt cuz <clears throat> i really didn't have any other support for that theory other than that one line in that letter Mm-hmm. My husband wasn't on board. He's Mr. Optimist. And I'm not mm-hmm. trashing him because I think both of us have our talents mm-hmm. as parents. And mine was kind of spotting those moments where we need to look into this more. Mm-hmm. So I took him to a doctor they recommended. And in Virginia, for some reason, I kept saying, I need a diagnosis. And they kept giving me pills, charging me for tests, telling me he was high risk and not defining it. Nobody ever did a psychological evaluation on my child. Wow. I'm like, okay, if I took him in for a heart condition, they would do diagnostics and then they would prescribe medicine. Mm-hmm. I want to know why in mental health you go in and you say one thing and they just write your prescription for a drug. Terrible. And there needs to be more screening at least or at least an assessment done. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't. I'm stopping you here because it's something that I'm so passionate about. And I'm actually going to be interviewing my psychiatrist from years ago, which I'm so grateful for. Because my first psychiatrist was awful. He just gave me, I don't remember what it was, Xanax or whatever. And I literally almost committed suicide that night because it was the wrong drug for me. It made me feel 10 times worse. And this 
other doctor, Dr. Parker, which I forever will be grateful for. He sat me down for hours, went through every detail of my condition step by step for three hours. And then he went through a plan and he said, we're going to try this a little bit, that a little bit. You're going to call me. You're going to call me. You're going to check in with me. And that's what saved my life. Really, really, that's what saved my life. And I say this and I'm stopping here in the middle of this very, very important story. But I want people to understand how important it is to get a good psychiatrist. It's not just taking medication. Medication, as much as it can help, it can kill. And it's... I don't know many psychiatrists that would spend that kind of time. There's such a shortage. And here in Virginia, I think the challenge is finding that therapist Mm -hmm. and the psychiatrists that work together. Yeah. So important. So what happened? So eventually I, I kept trying to get a psych evaluation and I kept like not getting one because I didn't know the phrase psychological evaluation. But you know what? As a parent, I shouldn't have to know that. It should have been, let's do this for this kid. They kept guessing and asking me things. Is he bipolar? And I'm like, how do I know? (laughs) You know, I don't know. So eventually his drug use got so bad because he was self-medicating. What was he getting it from? uh, The drugs? Yeah. Oh, I think he found some old Xanax prescription Mm -hmm. and then he was smoking pot and he was drinking alcohol. And we kind of cleaned out our own house of Mm -hmm. alcohol Mm -hmm. um, because I knew he was into it. And I could, you know, you think that drug tests are going to stop your child. But they're trying usually to cope with something. And I couldn't seem to get to the reason despite trying. And Robitussin is another one that they'll abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, I had Ready Whip. I liked whipped cream. He would suck the gas out of that. So there are a lot of the dog had tramadol. That's an opiate. He and he sold his concerta that was left over in the back of the cabinet. Yeah. So he sold that. Wow. To buy other drugs, like party drugs oh. from from China, like um, ecstasy. He oh, liked that one. Goodness! Oh, it was scary what he was. Were you doing. terrified? Terrified. I thought he is headed to the side of a mountain. You know, at full speed. So we took a really drastic move and had our son kidnapped out of his bed and taken to a wilderness program. Oh wow. Yeah. And you don't do that because you caught your kid with a beer and a joint. You do that because you are literally afraid that you're going to die. There's no other option. That's it. It's this or done. Exactly. We had been through all the resources locally. Mm -hmm. I mean, so now I am basically introducing a trauma to my already sensitive child. Oh, wow. So... To have to go to that point was, I have to tell you, a pretty low point. I mean, because you actually have to meet with the kidnapper um, that you've hired and you've paid thousands of dollars. Mm. And you have to plot and plan, which just makes you feel just ugly and sleazy and disgusting. And then you have to go home and act like everything is perfectly fine. Did you give him any indication that there will be a severe consequence if he doesn't stop? Was there was there anger? Was there frustration with your relationship with him? Or was it always empathy and sympathy? 
You know, it started with kind of an us versus him scenario where we were trying to stay in front of it and he was trying to get the drug. Eventually, I got to the empathetic, sympathetic place, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until after I joined a support group and learned that was the way to really do it. Mm -hmm. I love my son. I am not by nature a yeller. Mm-hmm. So there were there was a time when I lapsed into to yelling, and I'm not proud of that. Mm-hmm. And that's part of my own frustration, not knowing what to do, not really having any resources, and not having any friends to support what I was going through. Because it was so taboo, you couldn't even talk about right. it. And you're probably afraid if they knew that my son is such a drug addict, they're not going to want it to come to us. You don't want to have anything to do with us. They're just going to be distancing themselves from us, which is even more painful. Right. And I did tell a group and unfortunately one of those mothers went back and used my story to lecture her kid and word got back to my son very upset with me Mm -hmm. and challenged me on it. Why did you have to tell blah, blah, blah. And I just, you know, I, I had to shut up. I, I was just, and I had to go back to that that group of friends and say somebody broke my trust. <laughs> right, I've never broken your trust when you've told me. And why did you do that? And of course, she felt absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. But it just, I just wasn't getting a lot of support, despite the fact that I would tell people and I would talk about it, and they would just shut me up. That was difficult. So we had him kidnapped out of his bed and taken to this wilderness program. And it's the most organized group I've ever seen in my life. Where's it located? Uh, Clayton, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And they had all these videos and webinars, and they would suggest you watching this on this night, this on this night. And I was, we, my husband and I were watching one of the webinars and it mentioned Families Anonymous, which is a group of mothers and fathers mostly mm-hmm. that have children that are misusing substances mm-hmm. and probably suffer from mental illness at the same time. So I went to that group and that's when I started to adjust how I spoke to my son, how I looked at my own self-care mm-hmm. prior to that. You know, my own anxiety was just eating me alive. I just could feel the stomach acid in my own stomach churning. I mean, I was just a mess. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like the walls were closing in on me. And I couldn't wait to get to that support group. And my husband couldn't either. Mm. And that was, that became my home away from home. I could talk openly. I could find out what worked for others. And of all the things I did, I think finding support was the most important step I took Mm -hmm. Um, because I felt included. I felt uh, with a group of people who had been through what I had been through. And no fear of shaming and uh, fear of judgment and just unity in the same pain. Right. And and what's said in that room stays in that room. How long was this wilderness program meant to be? Well, typically your typical stay is eight weeks. Mm -hmm. He was there 10 weeks and it was $500 a day, I think. Oh my goodness. Insurance covered $1,200. Our bill was 
32,000. Was he angry? What was his reaction? Are you allowed to talk to him? What's that? To give me the scenario that like he's, is it too hard for you to relive this? No, no, no. I've written a book on it. I've been back okay. to this place many times. Okay. I don't need to worry about that. Um, okay. So what is that moment like when they come and take him? Like they, they really lift him by his arms because he's refusing to go? So the night before, we know that he's being kidnapped the next day and he's in our room. It's, this is going to be hard to tell. And he is telling me about Krom and how he's going to wear a top hat and tails and a purple cummerbund. And we know this prom isn't going to happen. And we know that we're planning to have our child taken out of his bed and he's going to miss this event that he wants to go to. And he left the room and we lost it because at that moment I realized we're grieving the loss of normal. You know, after this, I knew that they were going to recommend a therapeutic boarding school. Mm-hmm. So there'd be no more plays to go see with Charles in them. There'd be no Friday night football games with him there. It just changed our whole lives. Mm-hmm. So the next morning I wake him up, the two guys come in and we were only supposed to pack like toothbrush and a, just a few things because they outfit them in wilderness because you mm-hmm. pay for that, you know, new clothing and you you leave the room and you stay downstairs, and then when they leave, you you get an opportunity to say goodbye. Oh my God! And I can't even. It I, was hell. It hell. was hell. And He's looking at you in your eyes and saying, like in his eyes, "Don't, mommy, don't, don't, please, don't." Oh, the look of betrayal. Oh my! Never forget it. And that, and I'm looking at his, and I'm focusing on his hair because his hair was too long. But he had this beautiful brown curly hair and i'm thinking when will the next time he gets a haircut i mean just weird random stuff because the moment is so intense you just can't face it all at once are you allowed to hug him he did not want to hug oh my god it just killed me oh my god and by this time he's cuffed (gasps) they had to cuff him did he ever get um arrested before for drug use or something like that he did afterwards say on another incident that would take an entire podcast to go over but, that incident but so this was um, the first time you saw him cuffed which which is another stomach turner no this was the second time oh. he had um previously broken into a store when he had taken his sleep medicine and mixed it with alcohol mm. And I realize now he didn't remember that moment, but you know, he took like a six pack of Mike's Heart lemonade. Oh my goodness. And wore like a neon green shirt. So, wow. You know, it wasn't being clandestine by any means. Wow. So I had seen him in cuffs before, mm-hmm. but we had worked through that with a therapist. But by now, nothing was working. Right. And they drove him down to the wilderness and he was so angry oh my gosh we're spitting mad and we're not allowed to talk is he allowed Uh, to have his phone no no electronics no ipod 
They sleep under like a little tent that they set up themselves. They get rations. Um, they got to go to the bathroom in a hole. I don't think you'd like that very much. Mm-hmm. And a shower was a bucket of cold water with a sponge in it. Something okay. else he didn't oh. like very much. So explain to me what the idea behind this. Someone's suffering so much. He's, he's, he's dying inside. He's looking for refuge with substance abuse. This wilderness program is supposed to make them feel what? Well, they kind of come to terms with nature, you know, and realize that Nature can be as unforgiving as it can be beautiful. And it just gives them an opportunity to be away from distraction to work on themselves. There's a lot of therapy that happens in the woods and a therapist travels out there several times a week and they have group work Mm -hmm. and they take hikes and they have a lot of conversations. So there is a structure around it. Do you think it's something that works? Oh, boy. I I don't even know how to answer that. It, it's not plan A for anybody. Did you hear of anyone that came out of there and changed their lives? And they I think, and, they, and the person that was suffering said, not the parent, the person that was suffering said, it changed my life. Thank you for sending me as hot as it was. I, that's what I needed in order to get a reboost and, and find my wellness. You know, I... I don't know. There, I would have to ask Max at this point. He he also went. He was a friend of Charles's. He went to wilderness twice and went to therapeutic boarding school and then graduated from a boarding school. And he and Charles were friends at the boarding school, the second one. I'd have to ask him, but, you know, he's in college. He's doing well now. Mm-hmm. So he's alive. I think in most cases, it's, it's um, I need to keep my child alive. You know, but there needs to be some type of plan after wilderness. So you don't, I think as parents, we think in terms of we're going to send them away to be fixed. Mm -hmm. The whole family has to shift. But my purpose is I didn't know what I was dealing with. I didn't have a diagnosis Mm -hmm. and I needed, I needed that diagnosis. And that's what wilderness gave me a very organized and detailed diagnosis and that's where I got the diagnosis that he suffered from major depression, anxiety, cannabis dependence, which is basically self-medication. Mm-hmm. And we already had the diagnosis, ADHD combined type, and we already had the diagnosis of delayed sleep phase syndrome, which is DSPS. Mm-hmm. And it is a circadian rhythm disorder, which means that there are certain children that cannot fall asleep before a certain hour in the night. Mm-hmm. And by this time, his hour was two o'clock. So mm-hmm. Charles could not fall asleep before two o'clock. And what happens in the morning? He would want to sleep later. His body just doesn't turn off? Mm-mm. No, it wouldn't turn off. And then his melatonin didn't kick in until like 2 a.m. Wow. So he would typically would fall asleep then, but you know, those are hours where when kids are awake, a lot of things can happen in a dark and lonely house. Wow. So what happened after the, during the wilderness, are you in touch with therapists there with yes on a daily basis? No, we would have a a call once a week with the therapist. So it, that's it. So how do you function the rest of the week? Explain to me what happened to you that week. I I can't fathom 
you can't focus, you can't sleep, you can't probably eat. Our household had been complete chaos before he left. Mm -hmm. So actually, you do find some peace, although you feel terrible. The first night before they were kidnapping, I didn't sleep that night. But for the first time, you have peace in your household and you are desperate after years of not having any. So there is some moment where you can kind of rest and reflect because you're accustomed to going and putting out fires and addressing crises. Mm. And for the first time, we knew he was in safe hands or that's how we felt. He started writing a lot of music out there. He had always written a lot. He wrote rap music. And I never saw those lyrics until after he died. And he wrote a lot in wilderness. And those lyrics are a gift. And they helped me understand the why behind his addiction and suicide after his death. Because I never saw the lyrics before. You know, it was his private journal. And he wrote a whole lot in Wilderness. And by the end of Wilderness, I feel like he'd kind of come around and felt proud of himself because he'd done a solo and he had done really well on that. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to learn to start a fire. So they have goals for them Mm -hmm. and they feel real good when they meet these goals. He just didn't like the next step of going to a therapeutic boarding school. Mm -hmm. And we didn't either because, you know, I'm like, okay, we've just spent Mm $32,000. I saved 10 years for kitchen renovation Mm -hmm. and it was gone and, you know, it's gone in eight weeks. Right. Just supplemented the rest. Did they put him on medication? Did they, was part of the process diagnosing a proper prescription for him to stabilize him? No, um, typically if you need that, you would go to a residential treatment center where it's more of a hospital setting. What we wanted to do is get the drugs out of the system um, and try to start with a clean slate. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that they, the next step is a therapeutic boarding school where they see a psychiatrist and they start to work on what medication works for them. So when he came back after 10 weeks, he was clean of anything in his body, no drugs, no alcohol, no... But he didn't come home. They said, no, he can't come home. He needs to go directly from wilderness Mm -hmm. to therapeutic boarding school. And he had nothing in his his system. He was clean. He was clean. He had to be. I mean, he's in the middle of the woods in Georgia. And I mean, the The middle of the woods. Right, right. And did you see, how was he sleeping? How was he functioning with all that depression? Not well at first. And then because there are no electronics out there, mm-hmm. you, you know, think about when the power goes off mm-hmm. and how much earlier you go to bed. Mm-hmm. And usually how well you sleep, unless it's 95 and your air conditioner doesn't work. Right. So he he kept complaining about not being able to sleep. I sent some sleep medicine that his doctor, and I don't think they ever gave it to him. I am not real sure how well he slept, but they told me they thought in the latter part that he, he did sleep. I just, I don't know how well, or, you know, I, I just don't know. And I know that he felt suicidal while he was at wilderness, which is pretty scary. He told you about it? He did not. He wrote about it. Mm. And you only found out later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. They now 
early on, they'll take their shoestrings and any drawstrings that they might have, like in a pair of sweatpants. I don't understand. Something's so hard for me to grasp here. They know that the kids that they're taking are, that's the last resort because they're so desperate. Why is it that they don't figure out a treatment with medication to stabilize them versus cleaning them out with nothing and then slowly bringing them back to wellness with therapy, with programs? How can you take somebody to the wilderness, take everything, everything out of the system and give them nothing for comfort? How is that possible? Well, they found a lot of comfort in each other and they created a lot of connections out there with each other. But that's not enough for severe depression. They worked on some therapy and started, I'd have to say he looked pretty good Mm -hmm. in the wilderness. He didn't right at first. He was angry, Mm -hmm. but by the end it it did change him. Oh, okay. You know, he still held on to a lot of anger later on, but it changed him too. And I think that, you know, going on the solo by himself and feeling just really proud of himself for doing that, right? I think was part of it. And he made some friends out there, um, one in particular, and I think that helped. I don't really know the, you know, all I knew was that's what everybody recommended. Right. He got to the point where right. my counselor said, he's taking these new party drugs from China. Mm-hmm. There are kids dying in 30 minutes of taking right. these drugs. Right. We got to do something. So can I ask you a very personal question? You can sure. feel, you can say, I don't want to answer that or, or think about it. But as a parent, you try everything. You feel that they're not understanding you. The child is, you're working so hard. You're spending so much money. You're, you're taking off work. You're turning yourself upside down for the child and the child is not helping you along the process of finding comfort or whatever needs to be done. You, you decide the next move is the wilderness, which is the last resort. Is it in order to find comfort in the home or is it in order to find, give him comfort? It's a very hard question, I know. I wanted, I wanted that diagnosis. I wanted to stop my child from what he was doing. And I was powerless to watch him self-destruct and I thought, he's going to die. I don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. So it, my motivation was to figure out what was going on with him mm-hmm. and get that diagnosis and get some feedback and get him cleaned out so maybe he would, because you know he wasn't addicted to anything yet. But a child that gets addicted around the age of 15 or 16 mm-hmm. has a higher mortality higher mortality risk of early death. And I knew that. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I could delay at least that and give him, you know, his brain time Mm -hmm. to develop Mm -hmm. those executive functions, maybe we'd have a shot. And the peace in our home was kind of something I didn't expect. Um, I thought I was going to struggle the whole time and I struggled a lot. And my support group was wonderful during this time. Mm-hmm. And I had just started going to it, but they were very welcoming. And I just got moments of peace. It's kind of like when people tell me their child's arrested and they think, well, at least he's safe. Right. 
Right. Jail is not necessarily a safe place, right. but you know, it's better than them being out on the street or trying God knows what they're trying, you right. know, when they have more freedom. Right. So, so you definitely did it for his better good and you went through the suffering of seeing you you knew it was is like giving birth. The pain is unbearable, but you're you're creating something new and this is probably what you were looking forward to the the child labor is so it's so intense but you're hoping that a new child will come out a healthier perspective clarity with what to do with him and he'll get his comfort because seeing a kid suffer is one of the most painful things i think a mother can go through it is and they teach them a lot of strategies mm -hmm. and they need an opportunity after that to put those strategies to work. Mm -hmm. And there's just not any like intense outpatient in our state that could support that kind of transition. And tracking. Right. Which I mean, is so important. Exactly. It, and this was the first place that had like webinars to educate us on anything. Right, right. And then, of course, there were webinars and he would say, this is my opinion. Mm-hmm. And there are all these opinions that, you know, bump up against each other. I remember with the ADHD medicine, oh my gosh, if you talked about medicating a child, it was just like people would launch into you. Well, we don't mm -hmm. do that way. Well, you know, we just right. drug free. And, and right. Then we go drug free and thing, you know, he kind of spiral. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, you know, we tried biofeedback, you know, so we never were consistent with medication. And then at a certain point, he said, I don't want to take it anymore. And mm -hmm. that's his choice. Uh, right. You know, right. He's 15. He's in ninth grade. I'm not making him take a medication. He's not doesn't want to take. Right, right. So he comes back from the wilderness. He goes to boarding school. He starts therapy. And what happens next? So the, the idea there is kind of get them stabilized. But at the school, you had this changing philosophy. So at the time, you had the staff that loved the old ways of doing things, which weren't working on this new generation of children. And then you had the therapeutic staff that was supporting more of a modern approach to this generation of children. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, a digital age generation that had that feeling of marginal self-worth to begin with. And that punitive way that the staff wanted to take just wasn't cutting it anymore. But that's, so you kind of had this internal war going on that maybe I wasn't aware of right at first. Right. So I think that it wasn't the perfect placement for him, but it was drivable distance at, for family work. I mean, another place out in Idaho was recommended and they recommended this one. Mm -hmm. This one I could drive to and conceivably do the family work. Mm -hmm. Idaho meant we would have to buy plane tickets. Right. And we just didn't have the funds to be flying out there, you know, five times a year. Right. We didn't. I mean, right. we were strapped. What was paying for this next step was a home equity loan. 
Wow. Wow. What a devotion as a parent. What about the brother? Where was he in this whole picture? You're, you're devoting so much time, money, energy. Oh, I know. To, he's in, to, he was in college by the time Charles was in therapeutic boarding school. Hmm. So Richard's senior year, Charles was when Charles was, um, was that when he was kidnapped out of his bed? No, Richard was already in college when he was kidnapped out of his bed. Mm. But my son's senior year, my older son's senior year was amazing. And I really didn't get to him or I didn't allow myself to be present, to be as present or to enjoy it mm. as much as. I would have liked. You didn't you weren't you didn't have the space for it and emotional space, mind. You probably weren't even aware what was going and, on. And and he and I have talked about that. And I wrote about it in my book and mm-hmm. I've written blog posts about it. And mm-hmm. he and I have had extensive conversations. And his answer is, you know, mom, I'm I'm a lot like you now. I'm very independent because of because of that. Mm-hmm. I am that way. Because my parents focused so much on my brother mm-hmm. because he had issues as a teen with drug and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I know being the sibling that kind of had to fend for himself, herself or himself. And I also made some changes in parenting style too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I stopped lecturing. I decided to only ask questions. And listen. And lesson. So I developed some skill. We uh, we hope that like when we go through challenges, at least we'll learn from it and and yeah. grow versus just take the pain because otherwise we lost out. If we didn't grow from it and we didn't learn from it, we just got a painful experience with no gain. So what happened after boarding school? How long was he there for? Three years? No, he wasn't not that long. How long was he there? They wanted him there for 18 months. And he left at 14 months because something happened at the school. There was like this sex scandal between a student and a therapist. You know, it was like rats jumping off a ship. And so I pulled him out of there and I put him in a new placement. I went back to the educational consultant and I asked for a recommendation. And she said, well, I have a therapeutic one and a non-therapeutic one. And so he, we ended up putting him in Wasatch Academy in Utah because I liked how they nurture creativity. He was a, he was a creative genius. Mm-hmm. And I love their approach of having student-centered education. They were so patient. He was so popular there. He ended up getting kicked out ultimately because he had found drugs again. Mm. And he had two infractions, but he finished his degree online. Mm. But in 2012, late 2012, he left. So 22 months Mm -hmm. later, he came home Mm -hmm. in 2014. And Mm -hmm. nothing had changed in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I tried to find him some therapeutic support, support, but, you know, he'd just not show up at the appointments. Mm-hmm. I would have to deposit him there, wait in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like I was more invested than he was. I can't do this for him. I kind of backed off because I just wasn't getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. How and old was he? He was 19 at this point. Mm-hmm. So he's driving. He's supposed to either be in college or 
or a part-time job or something like that. Right. So he came home. Now he hasn't driven since he basically got his license. Mm -hmm. So I insisted that he take driver's ed all over again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he got mad at me. I said, listen, here's the deal. You don't take it. No car keys for you. Mm -hmm. That's, that's just the way it is. You've right. been gone for 22 months. You were right. driving all of four months. Right. You got kidnapped. Right. So he had to take it over again. And let me tell you, he wasn't the best driver, but it, it became good enough. Okay. And he finally gets a job at Taco Bell. And we're just, we. this is the nirvana, you know. Right. But all this time, I think within a month of coming home, my son became addicted to heroin, and we didn't know. Uh, you didn't see signs, nothing. Mm-mm. No, he he didn't use needles. Mm. I didn't know you could snort heroin, mm-hmm. and we had drug tested him. Somehow he passed, and he didn't use somebody else's urine. I know that, but I do know that I think he knew the test was coming up, and so he cleaned himself out for right. Mm-hmm. So I think he'd been addicted about 11 months. We we knew the last 30 days of his life. Mm-hmm. I The police come over and they show me pictures of my son at a pawn shop selling my family silver. And this, I have no idea. I haven't looked. I have no clue. Mm-hmm. And because we had had a pretty nasty altercation with the police where they stalked him and they... Uh, I can't even go into the abuse, but I didn't trust the police at that time. They were not helping me. I lied and said that the silver was his. Uh, my mother had given it to him and I wasn't happy about it, but it was his to do with what he wanted. Wow. And they left. Wow. But I don't know what their purpose was. Were they going to, were they going to press charges? Were they going to tell me anything? I don't know. And I thought, maybe it's drugs. Did you confront him? Yes. I confronted him that day. And here's where things really changed. I was upstairs in my office. He came home and I said, you know, I invited him upstairs and he knew something was up. Mm -hmm. And I was as patient and compassionate and empathetic. And I did a lot of listening. And he tells me this elaborate story because All the silver was gone except for one spoon Mm. when I looked in the silver box. And really, the room started to shift. I I thought I was going to be sick. Mm. I knew this was big. And he tells me some elaborate story and then looks at me and says, do you believe me? And I said, it's a very elaborate story. And I kept my mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And because that was unusual, Mm-hmm. he started to fill in the blanks. So there's all this silence. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he kind of talks about some drug use with Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. I may have been addicted, but I'm not anymore. And so we're kind of getting close to something. And, he, and then he says, I need some help. Wow. Right oh. there in the conversation? Yes. The first wow. time I heard it, and I'm like, bingo. Oh my God. Just by listening. Look at that. What a lesson. Just by listening. Just by listening. And he, we, you know, we hug and he is just racking sobs and on my shoulder. And it was decided that he would go down to his grandparents while we figured out the next step, Mm. because that was kind of his peaceful place. Mm -hmm. 
but he fought it. And I'm like, why is he fighting this? So he loves to go down there. And I think it's because he knew he'd be away from his dealer and he can't take drugs on a Exactly. For sure. I don't know this. Yeah. Makes sense. You know, we're totally naive. Right. My husband puts him on a plane to the grandparents' house. What happens? He goes to a draw. <laughs> and they have to deal with it. Where do you, where do, is it your parents or your husband's parents? My husband's parents. Where do they live? They live in Georgia, mm-hmm. about an hour uh, south of Atlanta. And so he goes to the draw. They got it. They don't know what's going on. I'm like, you know, so that's when we figure out that he's addicted to something. He had actually told me on his birthday, but I couldn't figure out how did he get that with no withdrawal? I mean, Mm -hmm. and he kept saying, well, I already did that. Mm -hmm. You know, Uh, my friend Savannah helped me off the drug and I'm like, I don't think it's that easy. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. So he goes to detox because he gets really, really sick. And then they then rehab. Um, I go a lot into that part of the story in the book. And then he ends up, the rehab is in the western part of Virginia. And after three weeks, insurance says, oh, he's cured, he can go home. And I'm like, right. In that time, we realized that we were probably going to need some more money. So we we sold our house. Wow. Yeah, we were still living in it. I had been through a small 401k and I said, we're not cashing in the rest of our retirement. I'm just not doing it. I've done the small one, but let's sell the house. So we have some liquid funds in case we need it. And I wanted out of that county. So when he came home, he didn't come home from rehab because we were moving Mm -hmm. and, you know, we're packing up stuff. And so he went to recovery house and he relapsed. And they took him to the hospital to clear him and then to the psych hospital for a psychological evaluation. And they said, we don't take those kind of kids anymore, once addicted to heroin. So they did not do the evaluation on him. Mm. He was checked into detox and he saw one person there that he knew and they walked out together. Mm. He just wanted, he wasn't ready He wanted one more party. All he had to do was three days there. He could have gone back to the recovery house, but I don't think he was ready to give it up yet. I don't think they're ever ready, right? Yeah. They will get to the point, you know, it's an illness. Mm. And once you go to a support group and you hear the other stories, you're like, okay, I get it. This Mm. is it. The brain is telling them, you have to have this drug to survive. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you're going to go through this evil, awful withdrawal. And mm-hmm. it is Bad. the worst flu times 10. Right. Wow. So he's out there for two weeks. We think, I think he's using, my husband thinks he's looking for a job. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to let him hold on to that fantasy. Mm-hmm. And we get a call on Monday and he says, Dad, I, I have nothing. He had sold his computer and his bike, and that felt really, really awful Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, those were his last possessions. Wow. Then he called me on Thursday. And at that point, you knew that he's using a lot because he's selling I I think I don't really know anything. Um, I know he's living with somebody down near 
VCU, the college. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The hallmark of addiction is a lot of lies and manipulation. So mm-hmm. I can't figure out if he's telling me the truth or he's lying to me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Right. So he calls me in the last on Thursday. I am a mess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just, I'm like a washcloth that's just wrung. Right. No and more left. Nothing. Nothing left. And my brain is flying out into the atmosphere, my thinking brain. And I can't figure out, he's actually, I know now he's going through withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So that's why the conversation didn't make a lot of sense. And he mm-hmm. gets really, really angry. I lose it at one point, which I'm like, oh gosh, I know better than this. Mm-hmm. So I kind of bring myself back down. Mm-hmm. He gets mad about something. We had an on and off conversation for two hours. Mm-hmm. There were a couple times I had to hang up and just like, I got to chill. Mm-hmm. Then he would pull it together and he would call me back. And then he just had this last explosion where he just unloaded on me and I had just had enough. Mm-hmm. And I hung up the phone and I cut off my mobile phone and I was about to unplug the house phone and he starts calling it and calling it and calling it, which is mm. what he did when he would get upset. He would just incessantly call or text. Right. He'd just blow up my phones. Wow. So I just said, I can't go there right now. Mm-hmm. And then he sends me a text that I will never forget. Mm. And I've got it on my blog and I have it in my book. Uh. And it's, I'll go to rehab. There's something I need to tell you. And I said, what else do you need to tell me? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and, you know, let me know if you want me to call you back. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. And I didn't call him back, which I, of course, is a huge regret. Mm -hmm. And there were things in this conversation that happened that really weren't like a normal mother. Mm-hmm. because of my state of mind. right? And I'm wrestling with myself. I mean, I've got to call the lawyer about the house closing. Right. I have to meet. Of course, uh, you're just juggling so many emotions, so many fears, so many sadnesses, yeah. so many pains, all in one body, one mind. Of course, you're human. I don't know what to do. I have right. no idea what's going on. I have. Right. He hasn't told me he's suicidal, but I felt it. Mm. I felt the despair and I didn't have a bucket to put it in mm. because or you didn't want to believe it. Right. Nobody talks about suicide. Mm-hmm. Not one mental health professional had introduced the topic and told me anything about it. They had told me he was high risk. Mm-hmm. They knew and they didn't share that with me. That's upsetting because yeah. I had no education. So I had nowhere to put I'm feeling this despair. I think he's about to hit rock bottom and he's going to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Only his rock bottom was suicide. Was it that night? Yeah, late at night. It that wasn't. Night? Yeah. You, I think he wanted it, to tell you I'm killing myself? I Or say goodbye. I think so. That was the last time you spoke to him? That horrible two-hour conversation? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. And, of course, I spent a good year grieving. Oh, torturing myself over that. Oh, Um, my God. You tried your best, and I know you know that, but the the regret, the regret. uh, What if, what if, what did did he want to tell me? What did he want to tell me? Did he write a note? 
you know, I he wrote a lot before he died songs. So I have those. I don't, he left kind of a few lines and I don't know if it was for me or for his girlfriend that broke up with him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a note. It was kind of a blame thing. Mm-hmm. So no, he didn't really leave a note. He left a lot of writing that helped me understand. But when the policeman came to tell us that our son had died, I expected to hear overdose. And when they said, told me the method of his suicide, I I just couldn't let the phrase in my head. I mean, I just couldn't breathe. I couldn't. I was just so shocked. And then the pieces started to fall together mm. after that. You know, if it's not on your radar, mm. it, it just comes out of nowhere. And that was the point where it was not long after that. And it was actually that night. And I, I looked at my husband and I said, the last chapter of his life can't be the last chapter of ours. And I'm going to do something about this. That night? That night. The same was, day of the... I didn't know news. what it was. I had no idea. At the news, the police come. They tell you your son died. He died from suicide. You're you're in shock. And the first reaction was, I'm going to do something. I mean, it was later that night. The but first, that's first. Like within, I would say within a year, it's amazing. Yeah, I I was upset because... I heard the despair. I knew something, alarms are going off, and I didn't have, I mean, my son went on social media and posted, if I died, no one would notice for 30 days. That is literally one of the bullet points under what do people thinking of suicide say? Oh, really? And he put it on social media. Wow. But nobody recognized it as a sign of suicide. Uh, well, one guy did, and he went to his rescue, and he got a hotel room for him for a couple of nights mm-hmm. and talked to him. But I think in the end, Charles thought that we had given up on him. Mm-hmm. Or he gave up on himself, or he didn't want to yeah. deal with the pain. He did. He gave up on himself. And and the pain was unbearable, probably unbearable. Well, people who suffer from depression and addiction are six times more likely to die by suicide, which Mm -hmm. I didn't know. So walk me through that scene of the police coming. Where was he? He was in... He was in in an apartment on Monument Avenue. And if you've never seen Monument Avenue in Richmond, you'd be like tree-lined, beautiful street, Mm -hmm. million-dollar row houses. Mm -hmm. And when they said they found him there, I just couldn't fit the scenario. Like, he was in a million-dollar neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was what they call a trap house in an apartment building there Mm -hmm. in the more urban part of that street. And they called my husband in a restaurant. We were having dinner. Mm -hmm. And, well... We weren't, you know, we were looking at our dinner. Let's just Mm -hmm. say that. Um, We were staring at our plates and they called and I knew immediately some about Charles Mm -hmm. and they called his mobile phone. I thought, how'd they get his mobile phone? And as soon as he hangs up, first thing I think of is, oh, he's, he's alive and safe. They're coming to tell me he's in jail. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, uh, you don't come by your house to tell you your 20-year-old's in jail. 
It just hit me and my body (gasps) cold. Oh my goodness. How they find him? How'd they know about it? Um, He was living in that trap house and a friend of his walked in and and saw the scene and saw this final scenery. Yeah. Which was immediately obvious. Um, And that friend was very shocked, of course, mm-hmm. and freaked out and called his parents. His parents came. I know his parents. Mm-hmm. And they freaked out, of course. And mm-hmm. just an awful, awful last scene. And I'm, I, I'm grateful to have been spared that. Mm-hmm. I, I would, that would be burned in my memory forever. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> just, I, they, They met us in the parking lot, and I found out in the back of a police car. And it is the most surreal, unreal. The first thing you want to do is you want to grab the edges of yesterday, bring it back so you could do it over. You're so sure that you can rewind. You want, I I need a redo. Oh, my goodness. I'll get it right now that I know I'll get this right. And there's this. No return. Do that. There is no return. Was there any counseling there for you? Oh yeah, I I seek support immediately. So saying from the police department, like were they uh, were they nice about it? Oh yeah, the guy that delivered the news. What a what a awful awful job! And this guy had a twenty year old son. Wow. You could read the stress on his face. there were two cops. The other one didn't get in the car. So I guess they kind of take turns mm-hmm. um, because, of course, parents go into wailing, you know, this awful, awful sound. And, you know, that's got to, <laughs> it's got to wear on them. Mm-hmm. So we begged them to let us drive home. Um, it wasn't far from there. Mm-hmm. So on the way home, we just kind of put everything on pause and I held it together well enough to make it to our house. And then we basically collapsed on the floor. I mean, it was, it was just awful. And the way I made it from one moment to the next was just saying that I would survive, that I didn't know how it would happen, but I was going to survive and that as bad as it was right then, it would never, ever be as bad as getting the news. Wow. And that's true. It never, it could never hurt that bad again. I mean, it hurts. God, it's a brutal journey, Mm -hmm. but that got me from one hour to the next. And Wow. Then we had to call family. And fortunately, my friends knew the Southern tradition of packing the house with people and food and friends and flowers. And love. And so for two weeks straight, um, a week and a half, people came to the house. Mm-hmm. And oh, God, that was such a beautiful thing. And I was so thankful for that Southern tradition because mm-hmm. I needed it. Right. Was there a funeral? We had a memorial service, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody actually stole the body, so we had a (laughs) truck. Yeah. (laughs) A whole other story. But um, so my best friend 
worked it out. We got the body back. And but why would someone do that? It was a disreputable funeral company, and they anyway watch who you, get recommendations. I mean, mm. there are there are low cost cremations mm. in the local, and find out from the funeral homes, um, and don't go looking on the internet. I I don't know why we did that. Mm-hmm. You know, you just in that moment of I don't know what to do. Right. So we got somebody who actually had a licensure mm-hmm. and then I, we realized that, you know, he was in the wrong hands and they were not responding. And I, I said, well, we want somebody else to handle this. And basically we had to pay to get the body back. So, um, wow. yeah. Another nightmare to the biggest nightmare. Oh my gosh. I mean, we like, were just, how bad can it get? It was my best friend that, work through all that. I, I don't think I'd have been capable of right, it. Right. I mean, you're just existing. You're just barely able to put one foot in front of the other right. and get out of bed. Right. Can I talk about shame for a second? Oh yeah. Where was shame with this whole thing after he committed suicide? Like were you, were you embarrassed to walk out of your door? Were you afraid to see people and what their reaction will be? Did you want to see people? How did you show up in the world after? Let me correct you with the dad by suicide. Oh, sorry. That's all right. Um, Thank you. Not word shaming. It, it's a process. You know, right away, I wasn't ashamed. I knew he suffered from two diseases, depression and addiction. But the rest of the world hadn't caught up to that thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, I made it real clear to my friends what I wanted, and that was their love and support. Mm-hmm. But after the memorial service, and we addressed it head on, I and I put on my company blog, you know, my mm-hmm. business partners, like, what do I tell everybody? I said he's, you know, he was a he suffered from a addiction and depression, and he killed himself, mm-hmm. and that was the story I went with. And actually, the day after he died, we were touring a house because I'm like, I have just lost my child. I want to go see that house. That's the one I want to buy. I need to have a place to land. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't be just have lost my child and now I have no place to live. Mm-hmm. So we went and visited the contractor and we didn't tell him. I mean, I thought, you know, I'll just hold it together for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And we walk in the room and he goes, well, how did he die? <gasps> no, he didn't say how did he die. He goes, how many kids do you have? And the the air got sucked out of the room because I said, my oldest is living his dream as a filmmaker and my youngest killed himself yesterday. <gasps> he must have looked at you like you were making up a story. Everybody in the room did. My husband's jaw hit the floor. My, my real estate agent was my cousin. And the look on her face right. was like, shock as a poor contractor. And I said, Josh, that's a completely normal question. Mm-hmm. And it felt good to say it, but then I had this immediate feeling of shame for having shared my ugly naked mama grief. Mm-hmm. And I, I have I've had to work through that. So when I decided to go public mm-hmm. with the whole and write a newspaper article, mm-hmm. so I called the newspaper and said I've had enough because. I would run into people and they wouldn't let me finish the sentence about it. And they wouldn't let me talk about Charles. They so just kept changing the subject. Mm-hmm. 
or I would notice that they would avoid me. Mm. Like I go in the grocery store, they avoid me. Not that I did a lot at the grocery store at this point, but if I need to just run in and get something. Mm-hmm. And I said, there's too much stigma. Mm-hmm. I am going to go public with this. I'm dragging this topic into mm-hmm. the spotlight. So I spent about six months writing the newspaper article, 1,200 words, and it was a terrible article for five of those months. Wow. It was an angry manifesto at one point. It was a sob story at one point. And finally, I crafted it into what I wanted it to be. I got a friend to look over it. Mm -hmm. She was the only other human being that knew I wrote this newspaper story. Mm -hmm. I send it to the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I think, boy, this this writing thing has helped. So I start my blog, Emotionally Naked. Mm-hmm. And I start writing every day on my blog. They call me in February to tell me that the article is published. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Now I am terrified. Mm-hmm. What have I done? My whole ugly family story is out there. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of being shamed or feeling ashamed for sharing my ugly, naked mama grief story. Mm-hmm. And my first fear is no one will want to read this and I'll feel like I buried my child again. Mm. I-, I feel like I buried his memory. Mm. And it went viral. The newspaper? The newspaper article went viral. Where was it published? Uh, local Richmond paper. Really? Yeah. It was because other people were reading their story in mine. Mm. And... Then all of a sudden, I had 200 visitors a day to my blog. Now, now I have a thousand a day, but you know, I've, I mean, I've just started it. And all of a sudden, I have this big, you know, fairly large audience, Mm -hmm. tiny little blog. Mm -hmm. And people start sharing them on Facebook. I mean, about grief, about suicide, about addiction. Mm -hmm. And that's what surprised me, Montana, is that I wasn't expecting people to share these stories mm-hmm. on the, on their social media page. Mm-hmm. That means it's a topic that they want to talk about, but they don't have the guts so they can share somebody else's conversation because it's so important to them. Right. And I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. So people kept encouraging me. They kept saying, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. Mm-hmm. I could barely, you know, it's all I could do to write a blog post. Mm-hmm. But I wrote my way through grief. What was every blog, every day was what you were feeling or a memory or a fact? Yeah, all those. It was Just whatever. what came up for you that day. It was emotionally naked, whatever I felt that day. And now I put a lot of guest stories out there as well. Mm-hmm. And because I'm so good with getting them ranked in Google and knowing mm-hmm. what headline to put in there. Mm-hmm. People will Google things and find the site mm-hmm. and find healing. And I've gotten messages that say, this post saved my life last night. Wow. And that never gets old. Talk about healing for you. Yeah, it was. a painful thing and giving comfort for others as a full circle, as much as it can be, because I don't think anything can replace a loss of a child. Nothing. Nothing. No amount of saving lives out there can replace that pain. 
It doesn't. The regret, the, 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 the sadness. I don't think so, but it can give comfort and strength. And what you said, you did that same day. You said, I'm going to continue. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through this. And, and you made a decision, which is so amazing. Most people would probably say, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Just write me prescriptions for anything that will take away the pain. Just commit me to a hospital because I can't, I can't yeah. deal. And you just took that, that, um, you've made like a vow with yourself. I'm going to get through this and I'm going to make a difference or I'll make something out of this because to just go along with a pain is not acceptable to me. I was just, I was angry. Mm. Um, that's a big part of it is that my son was a beautiful human being. Mm-hmm. I, he, he was adored. And the reason he was adored is he connected with people on a level that most people don't. Mm. He really listened to his friends. He was really there for others. That I wanted to carry forward that that legacy of connection and love. So beautiful. That and, is so beautiful. And that's what drove me. Is that, and that's why I've included his lyrics in my memoir. Mm. So I talk about the before, the during, and the after. Mm. So I, you know, I talk about how I worked through my pain. I talk about the mistakes I made, but also the things I did right. Mm. And I include, I included lyrics that sort of reflected the chapter that, and the, the part of the story I'm in. Mm. And it, it offers his perspective of where he was in that story mm. versus where I was. Mm. Wow. And those, his rap lyrics helped me understand the why. Mm-hmm. And so few people have those answers. And I thought a lot of these themes are universal. Mm. I need to share this with the world. And he wanted those raps shared with mm. the world. Yeah. Wow. I have so many questions, so many questions, but I know we got to go and maybe we'll have you on again because I feel like now that we know the story, there's the whole other episode of support, of love, of care, of lack of shame, breaking the stigma, acceptance. There's so much conversation around the story and thank you so much for being so open about it and so vulnerable and sharing your moments of grief with us, which is, I think... I think everybody can connect to some kind of grief, but not to this level, because until you go through it, you don't understand what it is. It's just impossible to understand. It is It is impossible. It's impossible. And I think what you're doing in the world is so incredible. Can you tell the audience about your mission now? Um, it's basically to create a culture of connection to prevent suicide. That is, that's my focus. And my hashtag is just listen. If we sit down and listen to another human being or give somebody a hug, Mm -hmm. that one gesture of giving your ears to another human being and establishing that connection is sometimes all it takes to prevent a suicide. Do you think that people can really live a life of with the thoughts, somebody that has the thoughts because they're going through so much pain, your son had so much pain, so much pain. Do you believe that with the right help, he could have healed? I do. I think the drug addiction, I don't think he was going to live through a drug addiction. Charles was what I would call a more fragile human being in terms of his own self-care or ability to 
see his way through a journey of that type. I, I wouldn't, he wasn't, a hardship was going without his whipped cream on his Starbucks iced coffee. That was hardship to Charles. And he was a highly sensitive individual. And I, I think if it weren't for the heroin addiction, he had a shot. But once that came in the picture, it for him, it was a matter of time. But I do think, and I have seen people heal from an addiction. You know, you had a guest on not too long ago that talked about brain training. And when she talked in that episode, what I recognize is I've been doing what she's saying mm. since the age of 15. Wow. I have put that ladder in my head. And when I needed to climb out of my head, mm-hmm. because my brain decided that it was going to think about this. And I'm like, no, you're not. Mm. And I have a methodology called my alter ego where I work through um, these issues. And that's helped me push myself forward in difficult times. So you do believe that people that suffer with tremendous sadness, depression, anxiety can seek help and can heal. I do. That suicide is not the answer. I do. And, and I'll leave, leave you with this story is that I wrote, this post called the final 48 hours and I put it out there and I thought, Oh my gosh, why did I share this really sad story? And this, I got this message from a girl named Lauren. It said two days ago, I thought about taking my life, but reading a post from a mother who's felt such devastating pain has changed my perspective on life. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do whatever it takes mm-hmm. to get better. Wow. That was a turning point for her. And you know what else? It was a turning point for me. Wow. wow. And that's when I said, this is what I'm doing. That's it. This for, the rest, it. for the rest of your life. Yeah. I've, I've got to do this. It's so mm-hmm. important. And that's when I recognize it's doable. Now, somebody that has a mental illness may also have to use the medication, but they always say it's the medication and the therapy. Mm-hmm. And what that therapy looks like for you mm-hmm. is different. But I think we have to look at that therapy as I'm going to be engaged. I'm not just dropping myself into an office and say, okay, I'm here, fix me. Right. We want, we need to want to heal. We, and we have to invest ourselves in that process. And however little we have to start, mm-hmm. just get that spark and that pile of light of hope burning. That's what we've got to do. And do the work, the hard work that no one wants to do. And it, this has been a brutal, brutal, brutal journey. Mm-hmm. But it, I've gotten through it because I've seek support. I have written a lot and mm-hmm. I have found positive coping strategies that help me. Wow. Okay. I know you got to go. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to have you on again because I think there's, we left the audience with so many questions and I'm going to ask the audience to send in questions, what they want to ask you in the future, because we just got the story, we got the feeling, but we need a lot of tips and, and a little bit more of an understanding what what a person that's in despair going through and how a loved one can help. What's the right What's the right mechanism? What's the right connection? You said your hashtag is just listen. Mm-hmm. Just listen. 
So where can people read more? Where could they find you? I know that you can't give support for the world because you don't have a thousand hours a day. So where could they read more to get support? My blog, Emotionally Naked. If you just Google Emotionally Naked, it should come up as one of the first options. Mm -hmm. And if you subscribe to the mailing list, um, you could win a copy of the book. Mm -hmm. or, um, and I have three ebooks that are with that. One is Coping Strategies for Grief and Loss. Anyway, the whole tribe together is where we've been able to make a difference. I mean, Lauren saw that post because my friends and my supporters and part of my tribe shared them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can only share in my other social, you know, I can't share 50,000 times. Right, right. Somebody has to help me carry that message. Right. And now we're all working together to carry that message and it's growing and it's, I'm partnering with people like you mm -hmm. and looking for those opportunities to promote you and your message and you promote mine because that's how we're going to break the stigma and that's how we're going to get more resources and more research studies and mm -hmm. and more very well um, needed attention from the drug companies from from the professional world from from schools from organizations from communities everybody needs to to change something because whatever's happening is not really working very well our culture is sick. Yeah. And I've seen what's the issue. And the, the biggest issue is connection. Mm. And that's something we can, that's something we can do something about. Right. Thank you so much for creating this platform, for being emotionally naked, for, for putting your heart and soul, your emotion, your grief out there to help somebody else. And I'm sure you saved a tremendous amount of lives. And, and prevented grief from other parents, from other spouses, from other relationships, from, from connections. So I, I really, I want to thank you as somebody that went through mental illness, that, that you're speaking out loud and, and you're putting yourself out there to help others that are suffering. I really appreciate it. I want to ask you one last question that I ask everybody. What does hope mean to you? I think hope is that saying you have to keep, you have to keep turned on. You have to grab a, a hold of it with the edges of your fingernails and hold on to it no matter what. And I tell myself that, and that's how I'm able to do it. I just tell my brain it has to do that. And I do have hope for others, and that's why I do what I do. Yeah, you're, you're. and I, I ended my book on a message of hope because it's important to me and it's important to all of us. Mm. What's the name of the book again? Diary of a Broken Mind. And is it on, is it on Amazon? It is. It will be out. It'll be everywhere. It'll be in the bookstores too. Oh, you didn't publish it yet. It is. It, the, my publisher sent it to the printer, and it will be out October first. Oh wow! So, so I will get advanced copies in September, and that's if you sign up for the list, you could actually win an advanced copy that you know before everybody else reads it. 
So definitely the first week in October, one of the, uh, let's just say the in the beginning of October, we're going to have you on again. That would be wonderful. Yeah, to discuss the book, a little bit deep dive into the book, maybe a chapter or two that are the most essential that you think can help people. Sure. Um, we'll think about it. We'll plan it. I think it's so important. And congratulations. That's huge. That is very exciting and huge. I was not aware about that. So thank you. Now I have to breathe through the day and process the story because, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Deep breathing. So Amos, thank you for sharing. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving me above and beyond your time that we planned. We'll see you soon and keep on pushing through this because it's so, so needed. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to hearing the the podcast when it's over yeah out there out there yes okay take care everybody thank you for joining and if you have any any comments or suggestions or personal stories please share because you are helping keep this legacy and preventing other deaths and families and pain and struggles bye for now Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.